0: This morning we are in uh, John chapter 7, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, John chapter 7. Uh, We're going to split it up. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read two portions of John chapter 7, the first 13 uh, verses, and then I'll skip down to verse 37. Before we do that, um, let me tell you this. Sometimes I like to think of myself as a runner. Um, This is when I'm really dreaming and thinking more of myself than I really am. And when I'm really thinking of myself as a runner, I remember one time I signed up for this race. It was a 10K, and uh, I'd never run that far before. But I said, you know, I was feeling pretty confident that maybe I could. I could pull it off, and maybe in a respectable way even. So I signed up for the race, and I ran it, and I finished it, and I'm alive to tell you about it. But as I think about that, that 10K, there's like three phases I remember distinctly about running that, that distance, You've got the first phase, uh, and that's when you're feeling good. There's a little bit of adrenaline. There's, you know, a big group of people, and you're taking off from this, this uh, start. You're going, and everybody's right there all cluttered about. And so you're feeling pretty good. You've got a good feel of energy, and it feels like, oh, man, this is no problem. I can do this. And then you hit, like, the middle phase of it. And that's when the crowd is really starting to thin out. And uh, your buddy that you were running with, he's either in front of you or behind you, and you, you feel kind of alone, and you're just kind of you're dying, basically. You, you're just like, when is this going to be over? I can't believe how long this is. And all you can think about is, is running this and trying to finish it and do it. And then there's the third phase, which is not very long. You wish it was longer, but that's when you can see the finish line. And uh, you begin to see people on this on the sidelines, so to speak, and they're cheering you on, and that's when maybe the ego kicks in a little bit and gives you a little bit of adrenaline boost. You trying to you're gonna finish strong and look like you know what you're doing and, and you make it towards the end. But it's that, that middle phase that's the worst. It's obviously the, the longest and feels the worst because you're doing this and it just feels so you feel so isolated, you feel so alone and you know, you don't regret that you're in the race and you still want to finish it, but you just start thinking, it's like, if I just had a little bit more juice, if I had a little bit more energy, if I had a little bit more go and, and motivation to really get you moving towards the end. And then think about your, your spiritual life or maybe just your circumstances. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You know, you, you, you love what you're doing, you, you love your circumstances, but you're just worn out you're just, you're just tired. And spiritually, you, you, you love God. You, you, uh, you know the Son, and you love his word and, and prayer and all those things, but you're just feeling tired. And you're just feeling in a place where you just, I just need some nourishment. I need some energy. I need some strength because I really want to press on and, and finish well. There's a promise here in this passage. Really, there's an invitation here in this passage that Jesus extends to us when we're in these moments and really just daily to go to this invitation and go to this promise. So let's read that promise together. I'll ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word, John chapter 7. I'll read verses 1 through 13, and I'm going to skip forward here a little bit. Uh, I may read a different, this may be, what I'm reading here may be a different translation from what you have in in your pew Bibles, but uh, just follow along, and you know, maybe it make more sense to you here it in a different way. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews', Jews feast of the booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go back to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. After, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now skip down to verse uh, 37. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is God's Word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us ears to hear. We treasure your Word. We need your Word. We pray the truth of it. Uh, would find its place in our hearts and in our minds in Christ's name, Amen. Would you please be seated? I'm sure you've been in a situation where somebody has had to cry out to, to get your attention, or maybe you were the one crying out to get somebody's attention. I can think of uh, two situations where this happened uh, to us. One is involved my son, who was probably, you know, maybe maybe not yet a year old at the time. Uh, we were doing what we love to do, and that is to go and get uh, pizza. And we were at this pizza restaurant, and we're sitting at one of those tables that seats four, but it really feels like it seats two very comfortably, but it's, they've got four chairs there, and we're all kind of packed in, and our son is in the high chair, kind of sitting at the head of the table there. And you know if you've been around kids in a table situation like this, they've got 10-foot arms, okay? They're they just reaching, and you just feel like you're just on defense the whole time. We get our drinks ordered. We put in our order for our pizza. And we ordered, it's one of the type of pizza places where you just get one big pizza, and they'll bring it out on the, on the tray, hot tray, and they'll put it down on like a little stand, thank you. And um, so we're waiting, we're waiting and waiting, playing defense with Knox. And finally the pizza comes, and we're hungry, and we're anxious to get in there. And, of course, Knox in his 10-foot arms, you know what's going to happen, reaches out and just splat. I mean, right in that thing. And Janelle and I saw it, and it was like everything went into slow motion. You know, he saw his eyes got real big, and he took in a big breath, and he just let it all out. And it was just like, you know, hot sauce and cheese on his hand. Poor guy. He had a big old blister right on his finger for, like, days after that. But he was just going to get our attention with that. The other time was, um, and this was a little bit more interesting, we were living in Florida at the time in this apartment apartment, we lived on the second floor. I was doing youth ministry. And it was my day off, and it was during the week. And I come out. Jen and I were going to go and do something. I don't know what it was. And um, I come out of the apartment first, and I'm like, you know, maybe 10, 20 feet in front of her. And I walk out the door. And, again, it's, you know, it's the middle of the day kind of, and so there's not a lot of cars there because everybody's at work. And as I'm walking down the steps, there's this woman on the other side of the parking lot, and she's just staring at me. I'm like, what is going on? Why is she staring at me? What's the deal? And I walk further along and get to my car, and I turn around, and I look at our apartment, and now I know why she's staring because there's all this smoke that's coming right uh, off the roof there, right behind our apartment. There's apartments that sit parallel to each other. And the apartment behind us was on fire. I mean, it was on fire going really good. And so I've got to do what I've always wanted to do, and that's that pull that fire alarm that's there that you see in those apartment buildings. And it actually worked, because that fire department was there like presto. They were right there, and they, they put it out. And Florida's everything's made out of stone, so nothing's really gonna like, go really far with that. We got a little bit of water damage, but that's what it was. Just somebody had a candle in there. Of course, it spilled, and that's what happened. So that was a, a, me yelling out or crying out because of an emergency. Knox cried out because he was in pain, And he was miserable. In this passage here, Jesus is crying out because he has a promise. He's got something to declare to us, a truth uh, that he wants us to know about. And it's that promise that I want us to think about this morning. This invitation that Jesus cries out with. And this invitation is to, to have our thirst quenched. But to get there, we need to unwrap it like this. We need to think about the context of Jesus crying out. I want to think about the invitation itself, how Jesus cries out to us, and then a period of examining, really, are we hearing this cry? Are we hearing this invitation? Are we seeing it getting traction in our lives? Are we seeing it play out? Are we really believing it? So first, the context of Jesus crying out, and this is this is important because it's going to lay the groundwork. You've got to stick with me to understand a little bit more of the invitation to make more sense uh, to us. So two things to talk about with this context. The oppression that he's experiencing, or excuse me, the, the opposition that he's experiencing, and then the occasion of it is the context. The opposition, we've seen this. John's gospel and really all the gospels, every once in a while they highlight the people that are against Jesus, Uh, Whether it's misunderstanding or whether it's like we just don't like you, we don't believe in you, and we are against you. You see this opposition come up all the time. We we saw it in John 6. You remember that Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that was a sign. But the problem with the crowd was they wanted the sign and not what the sign signified. They didn't want Christ. They just wanted more bread. And so there's opposition in the form of misunderstanding or not being willing to believe the end of that, later on, it, it, that bred opposition from the religious leaders, uh, opposition over his authority, his divine authority. They didn't like that, and they pushed back against it. And you see that the, the seed of, of of wanting to kill him and, and make that a, a final solution really start to, to take root in their lives. So much so do you see in John 7, 1, because of the Jews were seeking to kill him. It's, it's very Intense opposition that Jesus is experiencing. And that leads us to the opposition of his own brothers. The opposition that we see in his own family in the form of, of misunderstanding. And really them kind of being passive aggressive with Jesus. See, look again at verse 3. The brothers say to him, they say, Jesus, leave here and go to Judea. That your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, what the brothers are saying is go to the city. There's a big celebration going on. It only makes sense if you've got these miracles, if you've got these gifts, if you've got this, this ministry and message, go there. Uh, it, do it there. That's where you can really wow them and, and show the crowds and have this great big gathering come around you. They're, they're kind of challenging him, and I think they're kind of being passive-aggressive with him. The only problem is that verse 5 says that they didn't believe in him, which is certainly to say they didn't understand his ministry. They didn't understand completely his, his mission and what he was about. And so there's that opposition that he's facing. And then there's the opposition of the crowds. You see it in the text Some thought he was a good guy. He's doing these great things, and so, you know, how can we be critical of that? He's healing. This is really good. It's positive teaching. Others would say, you know, they just were maybe more cynical. They they doubted or they were skepticism that he had the, the wrong intentions or there's just something off about him. And so Jesus is going and making this invitation in the midst of this great big opposition, people who are either apathetic or don't get him or just downright against him. The other thing that we need to know about this context is the celebration that's, that's going on, the events, the, the, the feasts, uh, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a big deal. The Jews had like three great festivals at the time, three things that really drew them together uh, as, as a nation and as a body of, of people. And this was one of them, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze. And it was meant to remind them Oh, that, that period in their lives is God's people in the wilderness when they're wandering. After the exodus, God's released them there from those, with those plagues, and they're wandering in the wilderness from place to place to place. And God provides for them. He provides food for them. He provides water for them. And they, they're going and celebrating and remembering this. If you walked in Jerusalem during this time, the, the visual you would have was a lot of people camping out. Because they were staying in these booths or these um, temporary shelters or these tents. They all camped out in Jerusalem for like seven or eight days. And you were, it, they were physically, with their eyes, reminded of what God did in their lives and th- these practical ways by, by living like this and celebrating it like this. So all these people living in these what we would call tents today. The, the, the feel of the city would be a sense of joy, because this took it coincided with, with the harvest time. Uh, and, and y'all get this because we live in this kind of culture where agriculture is, is so big. But this was before um, ir- irrigation. This was before, you know, uh, pesticides and, and special seeds. And so they, they were distinctly d- dependent upon God in a unique way to provide this harvest for them. And God provided. There's a sense of celebration. The rains when we needed, the, the crops matured when we needed them and expected them. And there's this bringing all that in and celebrating God for doing this in their midst and doing this in a special way for them. But maybe the more important thing is for us this morning is the ritual that was taking place. The ritual would be every day they would go to the temple and there would be the priest there and he would have this special pitcher and they would go out as, as a body following this priest. He would go to this special pool, and he would draw water, fill that pitcher up with water. And as they're going back and forth from that special pool back to the temple and so on, they'd be reciting these psalms from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, singing those and, and praying those. And the priest would go back, and he would take that pitcher, and he'd pour it over uh, the altar there, and they would do that over and over again. They would do that so many times that they would see these, these streams of water that would come off of that and would form on the dirt ground that was there around them. And in this setting and in this, uh, over the years, it was also this celebration reminded them of the Messiah that was to come. Just as the water came onto the ground, it brought life, it brought harvest, it brought everything that they needed, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to provide everything that we need. He's going to bring life into our hearts and into us as a nation. And so knowing that context, we hear Jesus's invitation. You look down at verse 37 because he says, I'm not going to the, I'm not going to this thing, but he does show up and he shows up in a real private way. And for whatever reason, Jesus stands up and he cries out in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, Remember, this water, these streams that they're seeing with their eyes and experiencing in the city. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, this is the invitation to come to me. I'm making this declaration. I am, I am this living water. If you're thirsty, come to me, and I will quench that thirst out of your heart will, will flow this, this living water, this life-giving water in and through you. He's saying that they're seeing this celebration, the picture of the water, all these things. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. I, that. Those things point to me. They point to my ministry and what I'm doing for you and what you can expect from me when I'm in your life, when I belong to you. And he's not just saying this. He's not reciting it. He's not giving a lecture He's not performing an apologetic, but he's crying out. He's making this proclamation. And some people in that crowd, they're opposed to him. Some people in that crowd are apathetic to him. Some people in that crowd don't get him. Some people in that crowd are just now understanding who he is, and he cries out, I am the living water. I can quench your thirst. And if you're a Jew, you know the Old Testament. There's so many times where Jesus Uses water to describe this relationship and the promise that was to come. There's, there's places in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Zechariah, where it talks about the this, this streams of living water and Christ coming to fulfill those things as the Messiah. The obvious application is what? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Because Jesus' invitation is for you to come and to drink and to be nourished and to find life in him. And we get hints of it when the, the apostle, or excuse me, yeah, when John says, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, these streams of living water, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit who hadn't been given because the cross hadn't happened yet, and all those things that are to come, and that's why you can have life in him. That's why your, your thirst can be quenched. That's why you can know this kind of transformation because of the work of the Spirit in our lives and for certainly for Jesus to say, I can quench your thirst, I can deal with it. the heartache and the, 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 the need for refreshment in your life because I went to the cross, because I dealt with your sin, the thing that's holding you down, the thing that brings you shame and guilt and, and frustration, the thing that's, that's messing you up is that sin. And I've met that most important need in your life on that cross. I died in your place. And you can have your soul quenched with this, this living water because there's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, look what Christ did. Look who he is. He gives you power. He gives you joy. He gives you rest in him. And so if you're sitting there this morning, you're sitting here and you're thinking, I am thirsty. I have needs in my life. That's the best place to be to get this water. Because you finally come to the conclusion that, you know, my job is great but it still leaves me wanting. My relationships are great, but they still leave me wanting. The the stuff and the the things I'm able to do and all the toys, all that stuff is, is great, but it still leaves me empty. You're thirsty. And Jesus says, come to me and you can find your soul quenched. You can find rest. You can find peace. You can find power. You can find joy in him because of all the things he wants to give us. He gives us himself. and He gives abundantly to us. And this leads to this next question I have for us, and I think it, it should raise some examining. How do you know if you're, if you're drinking this water? How do you know if you're, you're seeing Christ like this in your life where your soul is being quenched by the, the water that he provides for you? Think about the results in your life. Verse 38, Jesus says, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers rivers of living water. That water that Jesus gives us is not stagnant. There's a sense of momentum. There's a sense of movement in our lives when when we receive the Spirit like that, when we know God like this, when we go to him like this. Uh, Somebody put it like this, asked the question, Are you a fountain or a drain? Are you a fountain or a drain in your Christian life? Are, are you consuming God or are you giving? Is, it, is there movement there? There's movement in your life. It, God, it works in our lives and there's movement in, our, in how we deal with other people relationally and there's movement in how we respond to our circumstances. A, a couple of examples. It, the idea of being a, a fountain of life. When the Spirit comes into your life, when you, re, when you drink from Christ and believe His promises and align your identity with Him and, and do all those things... You're seeing Christ. The Spirit's working and pointing to his truth, to who he is, what he's done, and what he promised to do, and what he commands us to do. And it doesn't leave you sitting there, but there's rivers of life flowing out of you. Suddenly you're aware of, I need to serve them. There's an opportunity to to minister to them, to care for them. Your your eyes are off yourself, and you stop being so self-indulgent or or doing this or that, worrying about your own agenda, but you start thinking about other people around you, that that you become a fountain of living water, that there's movement in your life. The other thing is to to think about it maybe like this. You know you're, you're, you're drinking of this, and your thirst is being quenched, and the Spirit's working, and you're going to Christ like this. When you can take who he is and allow his truth and his promises to change and have an influence on your circumstances. For example, if you believe God to be wise, you know, on paper we believe to be wise, but he's wise in relation to your life and to your situation and what you are dealing with. He is a God of wisdom operating there. And so you know you're trusting him and you're believing him and you're going to Him, receiving from Him, when you're in those bad circumstances, they don't make sense. And instead of being living in anxiety and living in fear and living in despondency and living in that way, you remember, God is a God of wisdom. And I, I can trust Him with my life. I can look and say the gospel was, was wisdom for me. He met that need in my life. How could He not meet this need and that need? I can trust Him. You may not know why he's doing things. You may not know the outcome right now. But that doesn't mean you can't trust him to be wise in your life. Are you thirsty? Are you willing to say, my way of doing my life is just not working. And I need to come and experience this fountain. I need to experience this water in my life. This imagery of water is it's such a beautiful thing, and it reminds us, you go back to the Old Testament, how it, God's people, even then, they struggled with thirst. Let me close with this reading from Psalm 63, just a couple verses, and it's an invitation. It, we're about to go to this table, and this table says, come and you'll find life, come and you'll, you'll find nourishment, come and you'll find strength, and the question for us is, are you going to be thirsty as you participate in this. Psalm 63, make this prayer your own. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you and as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise with joyful lips. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that this would be our prayer That we would realize our thirst, and that you would give us eyes to see that you are a God who can meet our thirst and nourish us, replenish us, and strengthen us. All by your grace, all because you gave us the gift of your Son, may we receive this truth as real in our lives. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. We move down here.